This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Since Monday, the move by Loblaw companies to freeze prices on no-name products has garnered a lot of attention and discussion. The announcement by the company's billionaire chairman, Galen Weston, just reignited the debate about whether the large grocers are using inflation as a cover for price gouging. The concept is called greedflation, and federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has been leading the conversation on this. The motion by the New Democrats calling on Ottawa to investigate greedflation received rare unanimous support from MPs in the House of Commons this past week. On Wednesday, Libby was joined by Jagmeet Singh to discuss. So we have, first of all, sadly, examples in the past of this happening in Canada. So we're no stranger to this happening. In 2018, the large corporate grocery stores and large bread producers were found, as a matter of fact, to have colluded to increase the price of bread in the bread price fixing scandal of 2018. And it had been going on for years until it was uncovered. We all remember that 25 buck credit. We remember that. And, and this is deeply troubling because we look at what's going on now. The cost of everything is up. And when we look specifically at food, even today's inflation numbers, we're seeing some of the other sectors having a bit of a reduction, a small cooling, but food continues to rise in price. And then we look at some of the evidence we have. We know that the big CEOs of these large corporate grocery stores are seeing big bonuses. We see big profits in that sector. The workers aren't getting paid more, the producers aren't getting paid more, but prices are certainly going up. Given all that evidence and a growing number of economists who point to clear indicia that the inflation that we're experiencing, the cost of living increase that we're experiencing can be attributed to corporate greed. So greedflation is a driver of the cost of living going up and specifically when it comes to food, And now, at uh, the motion that we put forward, calling for an inquiry into food prices, because let's get to the bottom of this, it prompted what we now can say is proof that corporate grocery stores do have control over their prices because they decided to freeze some prices. Now, freezing inflated prices is not necessarily going to help people, but it does prove our point that corporate grocery stores do have control over price setting. Well, certainly that they are the whims to the prices that are set by the market. Well, it depends on which one. Certainly Loblaw does because uh, they don't just sell the stuff. They distribute the stuff and they've got some production and they put the freeze or the freeze lid on the no-name products, which they have more control over. Well, what what it establishes is what we've all known. They're, They're not innocent bystanders at the whim of global markets, they actually set prices. And we know that they do. And then we know that in the past, they've colluded to increase prices. So what we're calling for and what we've passed in Parliament is to acknowledge that bread price fixing happened in 2018. Given that, we want an examination of prices. And let's determine whether it is, again, price fixing. Is it collusion? Or is it simply using inflation 
as a cover, using some of the legitimate price increases based on the fuel costs and the war in Ukraine and supply chain, using some of those legitimate reasons as cover to then gouge Canadians and exploit the opportunity, which the evidence looks like that's what's happening. But let's get to the bottom of it, and that's what we've forced Parliament to do. We're forcing an investigation into food prices, and we'll get to the bottom of this. Uh, Some people worry that uh, actually what's going on is that there will be price freezes at a a peak level of inflation, which uh, may have already started to ease. Right, and I think that is a problem. That's why I haven't celebrated the freezing as, as some sort of victory. I've celebrated the fact that uh, we have raised awareness that the public's efforts, and I want to give a lot of credit to the public for pointing out, we've seen so many tweets and social media posts around people pointing out how food prices have gone up so much. Uh, the public pressure, coupled with our efforts in Parliament, and New Democrats fighting to make this an issue, has drawn attention. And it's certainly rattled a lot of the corporate sector, and we're getting them to pay attention to this. And we're saying clearly now with the will of Parliament, something is troubling us and we want to investigate. And the investigation itself will help. And the proof now that they can set prices gives credence to our argument that if they can set prices in freezing it, they can also increase it and they can also lower it. And we're going to push to make sure Canadians can afford their groceries. Federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, he was in conversation with Libby on Wednesday. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Our Tune Into the Town panelists are tuned in to the hot election races ahead of tomorrow's municipal voting day across Ontario. One of those races is in Brampton, where there is a heavy political machine working to oust Patrick Brown, who seems to attract controversy in whichever political position he's held in recent years. Joining Libby for the first time on Thursday, San Gruel, founder of The Pointer in Brampton. First, though, our regulars, longtime former Toronto City Councillor Joe Mahevic and Lauren O'Neill, senior news editor at Blog TO. There are a lot of good races. Uh, I, I'm, I mean, I'm obviously keeping my eye on their mayoral race, even though we know it's already kind of, you know, in the bag for Tory. So it seems, but um, I, I mean, there are a lot of really interesting um, issues being brought up by candidates. I don't know if you saw the second debate. Um, I, I was really interested in, in some of like kind of the younger candidates and what they had to say. Um, but I know there's no particular ward race that I have my eye on. There's just a lot going on in general. It's just unfortunate that people don't seem to be as engaged with it as as uh, we'd like them to be. And uh, Councillor Mehevic, you are the interim councillor in one of the seven Toronto wards that are do not have an incumbent. I wasn't going to say vacant. So um, I'm sure you have your eye on that race. And what do you think is going on there? Well, that that is where the action is. It's the seven races that where there aren't any, where there is not currently an incumbent. Uh, they will be interesting. Each of them uh, has a certain level of competitiveness uh, to them. They have certainly more candidates. I think the average candidate in those seven races is ten, uh, which is good, which allows for healthy debate. And we'll look forward to seeing uh, who they are. Obviously, I'm watching them. I think two of them are in a little bit slightly different category, in as much as. Uh, former councillors from 2014 to 2018 uh, are running there, namely uh, John Burnside and Vince Crisanti, 
they have been councillors and now are seeking to return, not get re-elected, but to return to city council. So they're a little bit different, but certainly the other five will be very interesting races to races to watch. And they'll affect the tone of council depending on who gets in. Yeah, I mean, so anecdotally, it actually seems like Nikki Kaur has a very good chance because what we're hearing from our reporters who are on the ground and from people who've gone out door knocking with candidates and from readers who are engaged with the pointer quite closely is that uh, there's a real appetite for change, that that a lot of people want to get rid of Patrick Brown after four years of chaos. Uh, But in terms of polling, Patrick Brown is using a pretty dated poll uh, back before Nikki Kaur had even launched her campaign that shows him comfortably ahead. Nikki Kaur and her team, led by Nick Cavallis, uh, who you probably are familiar with, yes. his work with Toronto candidates over the years, uh, high-profile people like the Fords and John Tory. Uh, Nick Cavallis' poll, uh, his most recent poll, shows them in a dead heat, neck and neck. Uh, but we're getting information that in the last week, things have maybe, you know, as I said, trended in favor of Nikki Kaur uh, after just story after story, just in the last two weeks, you know, pick up the Toronto Star, you know, look at stuff that CTV's reported out, global, um, local media, the pointer, you know, probably no less than four new scandals uh, with Patrick Brown at the center. I mean, I'm cautious to make any predictions, but I am kind of interested to see who wins in um, Etobicoke North. It's the first time in 22 years that a Ford hasn't been running. So to see what kind of happens there will be interesting. Um, I mean, I predict that Tory will likely win based on, you know, the advanced numbers and, and that voter turnout will be low. But I hope that the city proves me wrong. Yes. Well, I think that Toronto uh, will have a low voter turnout. And I think there'll be a lot of reflections on what that means for the Torontonians' appetite for democracy and maybe other meanings that will be uh, be gleaned from uh, from this election. I think the mayor, Tory, will, uh, will have, I believe he will win. I think he'll win with a fairly strong majority. And then the question will be, what does he do with that uh, majority and that uh, that amount of support from Torontonians? Um, I, I suspect that he will take some uh, stronger initiatives. Maybe road tolling will be one of them. Around the housing front will be other. Uh, it's what he does with that majority. There'll be some small changes on councillors on the council floor with seven uh, new councillors or renewed councillors on. And um, I think that will provide some new energy. My sense in the last little while uh, coming back is, is that there's a certain tiredness at city council. Maybe they will bring new life uh, to city council. And I look forward to uh, to seeing that. But we do need we do need a democratic refresh at uh, at city hall. And um, uh, yeah, the day after the election will be the start of that process as well. Former Toronto City Councillor Joe Mahevic, who's been a caretaker councillor since June in Spadina, Fort York. Lauren O'Neill, Senior News Editor at Blog TO. And San Gruel, founder of The Pointer in Brampton. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, will we soon have to deal with a COVID variant that evades the vaccines? We discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. 
Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We've been hearing some dire warnings about a potential fall resurgence of COVID-19. The latest is from Canada's Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, who says the Public Health Agency of Canada is looking carefully at the evolution of Omicron subvariants and preparing for a worst-case scenario. There have been some reports that the latest subvariants may have the ability to evade COVID vaccines and may be even more contagious than previous variations. Epidemiologist Dr. Prabhat Jha is a faculty member at the Dalla-Lana School of Public Health and joined Fight Back on Wednesday. Well, we've heard that the subvariants, the cousins of Omicron, are already circulating in some settings, for example, in Germany quite widely, and contributing to an increase in cases. In Canada, there has not yet been a clear increase in cases, but that's just inevitable, I think, as we get into the winter and or fall and winter uh, flu-like season, basically, when people are doing more crowding indoors. And uh, as you know, the mask fatigue has come in quite widely. People aren't wearing masks nearly as much, in part because they're... Guilty uh, as charged. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I think we all do that. Uh, it's just human behavior. But I think the important thing to note here is, first of all, the uh, evidence that we have. We look to Germany and, and Western Europe, who are roughly three to four weeks ahead of us in terms of the trajectories of the of the um, uh, of the variants um, that even two doses of the vaccine which most canadians now have protects really quite well against dropping dead or being seriously hospitalized but the single most effective thing that could be done in canada is to make sure the third dose you know we're, we've been talking about the, the fourth dose here uh, or the second booster but the third dose coverage is only 50 percent among adult canadians or above age five so there's lots of canadians millions of canadians that haven't even got the third dose and the question is should they get this new vaccine that yep. targets ba1 or should they get um, the original vaccine. Um, I would say get the first one you can, because the evidence suggests that these the new variant vaccines, the Omicron BA1, should be a little bit better. But remember, that targets BA1, which is what hit us in January of last year. What's circulating now in Canada is a cousin of that BA5. So naturally, it's probably not going to be as effective as it would be against the January of last year variant. Let me just clarify. I thought the Pfizer vaccine Mm -hmm. did target the BA4 and 5, no? Uh, Yes, the Tiger, uh, you're right. The Pfizer vaccine does target against BA4 and 5. But when you look at the evidence, the main effect is not so much from um, these new types of vaccines, it's from getting the third dose or the fourth dose. And we have to remember that as more evidence accumulates, the main effect is simply having another vaccine on board. That's the most important decision, um, whether you get 
the newer one or the older one. Like I got the older one, and I, you know, as my booster, and I think that's fine because that just gives me some protection um, against being further protection against being hospitalized. This is our concern: is to make sure that extra doses, in the, particular in the elder population and immunocompromised, will keep people out of hospital, and that probably will be the strategy if we get the new variants showing up, the displaced BA5. Uh, but that hasn't happened yet. This is what Theresa Tam and others are saying. We're watching the Germany data. We're watching other countries and our own data and seeing whether uh, the new subvariants displace, uh, displace BA5. Epidemiologist Dr. Prabhat Jha, faculty member at the Dalla-Lana School of Public Health. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. These days, we talk openly about all kinds of personal issues that used to be whispered and hidden. Among those issues is menopause. This past Tuesday was World Menopause Day which has been acknowledged on October 18th since 2011. As many as 10 million women over the age of 40 are in some stage of menopause, according to the nonprofit group Catalyst. Experts at Catalyst are raising awareness of the reality that menopause is often overlooked at the workplace and encourage employers to implement a strategy to ensure that women employees going through it can be better supported. Symptoms vary widely, from no big deal to debilitating, and they can certainly interfere with enjoyment and productivity. On World Menopause Day, Libby was joined by Vandana Juneha, Vice President of Advisory Services at Catalyst, and Dr. Jennifer Blake, a professor at the University of Toronto with a clinical expertise in menopause. It's not just women who need to be aware. I think that we, we need to, you're right, it's been the butt of jokes. It should not be the butt of jokes. It is a transition that, that uh, we go through if we live long enough. It's an inevitable transition. And it's one that is a tremendous opportunity for women to really uh, think about their health and the decisions they can make now that are going to improve their health for the next almost half their life that's uh, that's yet to come. So um, I'm really pleased that we're having this conversation today. Vandana Janeha, you are focusing on the effects in the workplace. What happens in the workplace around menopause that has to be uh, improved or corrected? We see that, of course, the conversation around menopause is uh, prevalent. We are talking about it. We're hearing about it in the news today being, uh, you know, World Menopause Day. But one thing that we're really seeing missing in the conversation is actually the impact that it actually has on women and in workplaces in general. Um, so there are um, several impacts in the workplace itself. Um, and as a result, we really see the need for having a greater strategy in place. Yeah, like what? Like what happens in the workplace around menopause? That's a problem. Well, we see uh, women in particular um, being impacted at a stage in their careers 
when really um, they are having the experience of um, going through either perimenopause, menopause, postmenopause at a stage in their career when they are in, they're either stepping into leadership roles, more senior roles, um, or they are experiencing uh, roles where there are many more demands on them. Um, at a time where their their health is also impacted. So they're seeing these two things coming together. Um, and it has an impact on how, uh, first of all, they're able to um, uh, function in their roles, but also how they may be perceived. So we see this uh, the concept of intersectionality coming into place where there's the intersection of uh, age or, as well as gender at the same time. And these are issues that we're not necessarily comfortable in talking about in the workplace. Yeah, I I need to get uh, more specific. Maybe uh, Dr. Blake can help. Now, is it an issue that uh, you can have mood swings when you're going through menopause, and this certainly can affect what goes on in the workplace? Is it that uh, if you're having a hot flash, suddenly you're going to turn all red, and it's embarrassing if that happens in a meeting? What are the biggest problems, Dr. Blake, that would interfere with day-to-day? There's there's a lot that changes, and and it's a lot of it is related to the changes in hormone levels. Now, estrogen itself actually helps us adapt and cope with stress. So one of the things that we hear very commonly from women is that they are finding their workplace more stressful. Well, the workplace is more stressful, but they are perceiving that they are finding it more personally stressful. Women are also making decisions about their values and and how they want to spend their time. So I think that's another thing that we need to consider. Sometimes the stresses may not be all that much different, but women are making an assessment to say, is this how I want to spend my time? This does not seem uh, like a valuable use of my time. Women at this stage have so much to offer, and they are frequently freer from things that, that were distractions and um, pressures on their time in earlier life. So a smart employer would be thinking exactly as Catalyst is suggesting and figuring out how to make it a, a, a great workplace to be part of. Dr. Jennifer Blake, professor at the University of Toronto with a clinical expertise in menopause, and Vandana Juneha, vice president of advisory services at Catalyst. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Catherine in Toronto phoned in on World Menopause Day. Before I retired, I shared an office with seven other women, and we were all menopausal at the time. Okay, yeah. Five women had brain fog, hot flashes, and night sweats. Two of us did not. And I think it's a function of lifestyle. Why didn't two of us? We didn't do caffeine. We didn't do alcohol. We were vegetarian. 
uh, no drug. We weren't on any meds, and we weren't doing recreational drugs, and we were exercising three days a week. And we sailed through menopause. We didn't have any of the symptoms that I just described. Jeanette in Scarborough called to tell her story about the new COVID bivalent vaccine. Well, I uh, got uh, the uh, Moderna bivalent vaccine. And two weeks after that, I was exposed to COVID. Uh, The uh, person that I was chatting with didn't know he had it and... uh, called me the next day and said he he did have it and he tested positive and the other people that he was talking to after me got it his wife got it i did not get it Good and for i you. think it's because i had the uh, you know i mean two weeks i was probably at the peak of you know the immunity from it okay well that's good to know and now fight back's knockout call of the week There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is Sita in Mississauga, who phoned about the Loblaw price freeze on no-name products. Loblaws will gain by freezing price. It will be bad for consumers. We buy mostly no-name products because they are cheaper than brand name. No-name products are under $2, most of them. So if they freeze price at $2 and don't put them on sale for a dollar at times, who is going to win? Do you think it's a publicity seat Yes, it is. Because when they put these products on sale, something you get for a dollar or 99 cents or whatever, it's canned food. And people depend on these things to stock up and to use, and it's cheaper than to buy fresh fruits and vegetables. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.